you've just started joining us on Sundays or you're one of our members here, uh, let me welcome you in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is James Russell and I'm one of the pastors in training here. Uh, and later on, our associate pastor, Andy Patterson, uh, will be preaching from God's Word. And we trust that as we open God's Word together this morning that, that He will speak to us. I just have one announcement this morning. Uh, and that is that from next Sunday, uh, the 20th of February, uh, children are going to join us from the start of, of the service until they're told uh, to make their way to Sunday school. So parents, uh, from next week, there's no need to drop your kids directly down to Sunday school. Uh, just come into the service together and they'll be told when they need to head out. As we come uh, to sing this morning, let's focus on the one we have come uh, to praise. And to help us do that, uh, I'm going to read uh, Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are an uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. We've all come together this morning with different emotions, different things going on in our lives. And yet the one constant we all share is that our God is our refuge and strength. As we sing these first two songs, let's be still and know that the Lord Almighty is our God and that he is with us. Let's stand as we sing.
let's come before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are the great God of highest heaven. You are the sovereign Lord who is seated on your throne, the one who knows all things, the one who sustains all things, and the one who has all power and authority. And yet in the person of your son, you came down to earth and took on human flesh. You bore the guilt and shame of sin on the cross. And you were humbled to the grave and you rose again, defeating death so that by your spirit we could have life, so that we could have endless hope and peace. Lord, we worship you this morning. Thank you for such a great salvation. Lord, we thank you for opening our blind eyes to the wonders of the gospel. Thank you for opening up your words, for helping us to believe. Lord, we now ask that you would help us to live lives that are dependent on your grace. Lord, so often we try to rely on our own strength. So often we fall back into our old ways. Lord, please forgive us. Lord, please keep our hearts and guide our souls from the evils that we face every day. Lord, by your spirit, would you win that civil war that goes on in our hearts? Would you help us to worship you with every thought and word and deed? And Lord, as we spend time this morning thinking about how we can share Christ with the people in our lives, Lord, would you empower us to live lives that glorify you? Would you help us to always have an answer for the hope that we have? That many more would come into your glorious kingdom and know the joy of being one of your children. And we pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this morning is the second of two Sundays where we are spending some time thinking about how we can make Jesus known. And in the light of that, Andy is going to come now and share a little bit about passion for life, uh, which will be the focus of our mission week uh, in April. And then following that, Robert Naismith, uh, one of our elders, is going to come and lead us in our prayer of intercession. Andy. You'll be aware, well, I hope you'll be aware that we are having a special week of mission coming up from April the 10th to April the 17th. And it's not just us, but it is a national initiative that's uh, going around called A Passion for Life. And uh, that's why we've been preparing for this. It's why we've been preparing for it over the last couple of, uh, well, uh, with our growth groups. Sorry, I just focusing to make sure I don't crackle too much. Uh, but in our growth groups, if you're part of our growth That might be better. Mute apparently means you can't be heard. Uh, so, in growth groups, we've been doing some courses, very special, very helpful about how we can share the good news uh, of Jesus with others. Um, 
you may have seen and found that there are some of these booklets in um, the church on the seats. Uh, the Greatest Journey, 21 Lessons in Making Jesus Known. Um, these are based on the 21 videos that have been produced by Passion for Life that we're using. And if you would like a copy, try and find one and take one. It's only one between three, I'm afraid. And if you're in that part of the gallery, we didn't even have enough to go around. So you'll just have to, if you want one of these, uh, go and just see what's left. But we knew you're such an elite bunch anyway up there. Um, so go and have a look for these. If you're in the gallery, you'll find them at the end of the gallery row. And this might help you. It might follow through on some of the things that we're talking about, about making Jesus um, better known. Dave, if we can go to the next slide, because there are a, n a number of events that are going on around Edinburgh and of which we're a part. The, that is in yellow. Now, I hope you can see that. If not, we should be making opera glasses available, I think. There is prayer that we are doing amongst all the churches. You can see a couple of those dates on the 14th and the 28th of March. We'll be giving you details about how you we can join with others on Zoom to pray for this mission opportunity. And you'll see that there are various things going on. For example, like children's puppets do at Carubbers. Think and Drink, uh, at, that's arranged by Cornerstone Church, uh, the free church there. Um, and what I really want to focus on is what we have the opportunity to do. First of all, we have a week of prayer from the 4th to the 8th of April, and we would love you to be part of that. Again, there'll be more details nearer the time, but we want to pray that God would use this week and work through that. Uh, then on the 10th of April, Michael Otts is going to be with us. He's going to be preaching morning and evening, and then that week following, from the Monday to the Friday, the 11th to the 15th, we're running an art exhibition here in this building. And uh, we would love you to come along. It's going to run from 10 in the morning till 3 in the afternoon. There's going to be a cafe at which we will be providing drinks and refreshments for folks. Um, artists in the church, and we do have a number of them, they're already working on their pieces of art, and uh, that's going to be ready, we hope, at the end of February, so we can look at how we display that and make that helpful. It's all on the theme of, of that passion for life. A great opportunity for you to bring friends around in a very casual setting. Now, if you can help us in that, a good number of you signed up, volunteered to help us both in the cafe and just being present in the building. The uh, clipboards are still out and available. Again, there's two at the front, there's two at the back in the gallery, and there's two on the media table in the lobby. If you didn't sign up last week and you'd like to help, you can manage one of those days, Monday to Friday. We would love you to help. We're breaking it into two, a morning session, uh, half nine to half 12, and an afternoon session, 12 to three. We would love your help, please. Uh, for as much as possible. But then the three other things I need to mention. Tuesday, we are going to be having a special uh, Songs of Praise. Um, that is going to be choir and orchestra. You're maybe going to be part of that. And we want you to bring friends to come. And there's going to be videoed interviews with folks in which we're going to be hearing them tell their stories about the good news of Jesus and how it altered their lives. 
on Friday. The band is going to be helping us with contemporary Easter praise, and Michael Arts will be preaching. And on the Sunday, uh, then we're going to be meeting on Easter Sunday morning here. Again, Michael Arts preaching, and in the evening, we're going to be going over at 7.30 to the Usher Hall for the Origin uh, uh, resurrection celebration, and again, Michael Arts is going to be the preacher on that event. And you'll see on the screen there are other things, particularly a sports quiz uh, that's running on the 8th of April at the Edinburgh Ackies uh, Clubhouse. So many things, we're going to keep you in touch with this. We want you to be planning and thinking now about what you can do. And if you can practically help us, either by uh, being present Monday to Friday, or even by providing works of art, maybe sign up, let us know through the clipboards that we have in front. Thank you. Robert. Please uh, join with me as we pray for the needs of others. Our loving Heavenly Father, what a blessing that your word tells us to present our request to you by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. So together this morning, we want to bring before you our brothers and sisters who are unwell. We thank you for that the Lord Jesus has told us, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, I don't give you as the world gives. And so we ask that each of the people we mention now would know that peace and keep their hope anchored in you. We think of Natasha Black and Evelyn Cormack in hospital, Ian and Joyce Balfour, Sarah Forsyth and Morris Gunrussell at home. We remember Celia and Sam Barron and the recent difficult diagnosis that Celia has received. And Father, we ask that the treatment that Sheila Howard is having would be effective and that you would strengthen Sheila and Fred as they go through these weeks ahead. And we lift before you others, perhaps unknown to us, who are going through difficult times with their general health or their mental health. Father, we do pray for Babette, whose father died recently, and ask that she would find comfort and strength in you. Father, too, we thank you for the opportunities that Passion for Life will bring us around Easter time. Direct each of us to people for whom we should be praying, and give us openings to speak to them concerning the good news about Jesus between now and Easter. We ask that you will have your hand over the preparations that are being made for Andy and others as they plan for the Passion for Life week. And we thank you for last Sunday's message where we learned the principles of talking about Jesus and ask that as Andy teaches us how to talk about Jesus this morning, that each one of us would be careful listeners. And then that by the strength of the Holy Spirit in us, we would put into practice what we have learned. Our Father, we think of Barbara Hodder today as she continues her consultant work on Bible translation. We ask that Barbara would be able to renew contact with the Anjika team as she seeks to check the book of Esther. We thank you that the first check of the Romani translation has been done and ask that a suitable plan would be put in place for the completion of Petru's consultant training. We ask that there would be the same good progress with the Taga Kaulo and Koli Bugan revision. We ask too that Barbara's one-to-one -one and group Bible studies with international students would bear fruit. 
and we give thanks that Barbara is able to support her mother in her nursing home and that this would be a blessing to them both. Our Father, for the Tajikant people in Algeria, we ask that they will hear the good news about Jesus, whether that is by radio or some other means. We ask that the Tajikant will be satisfied with the Lord alone and turn to no other God. Our Father, we're distressed at the wars and conflict and oppression that we see all over your world. We ask that those we seek to bring about peace and justice would have success. But above all, we long that your kingdom would grow all over the world. We bring all these petitions and requests and thanksgiving before you in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, at this point in our service, we're going to have our Bible reading. Um, so please turn with me to Acts 17. And we're going to start reading from verse 16. So that's Acts 17, beginning at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice 
by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is the word of the Lord. Before Andy comes to preach, we're going to sing again. Uh, This is a hymn that helps us uh, to reflect on the call that we have to proclaim Christ to a world that is lost in darkness and to daily take up our cross and follow him. Let's stand as we sing for the cause.
last week, we, we looked at some of the biblical principles that shape and guide how we speak about Jesus to others. We saw that we need to live compassionately and that we need to speak wisely. This week, we go on to examine what this looks like in practice. What do we see in the Bible? What do the apostles teach and model for us? And what we discover is that this isn't just about the quality of our lives on the outside. It begins with the motivation of our hearts on the inside. Take another look at the key verses we looked at last week from Colossians. They'll be on screen. Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6, where Paul writes, Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. And there's a word there in those verses that our Western eyes quickly pass over, not grasping the significance that it had for the Jewish reader or the reader for the, from the Middle East. It's that word, outsider. For here's the motivation that burns within Paul, and he assumes burns within us as well, those of us here who know and love Jesus and call him Lord. See, Paul, uh, Paul doesn't call people without Jesus the lost here. Uh, actually, he only does that in one other place, use that expression, the lost. He doesn't call them the unsaved. You don't find that expression at all in Scripture. Rather, he calls them outsiders. Now, to us, such an expression means very little. But to Paul's readers, such a word would have resonated with a whole variety of emotions and meanings. You see, as a Jew, Paul understood that word in relation to those living outside that collection of tents that made up the camp of Israel, as in Israel's history, they traveled from Egypt to the Promised Land, and at various places they had pitched camp in tribal order all around the temple. And within that arrangement, there was order, there was security, there was belonging. But to be outside the camp meant that you were excluded. You were not part of the community. You were separated from the tabernacle worship. And indeed, according to Leviticus 13, it was a place of disease. According to Numbers 15, it was a place of death. According to Deuteronomy 23, it was a place of pollution. But not only would this expression have been meaningful to the Jews as they remembered and it resonated with them in that context of the Jewish camp, it also would have been understood by any Middle Eastern dweller of the time. For to be outside carried with it the sense of being outside a city. You see, city walls used to be of great significance until a relatively short time ago. You can still find the city walls of Edinburgh, do the tour, look at the maps. 
we had our city walls. And those who worked the fields, especially there in the Middle East, knew that when danger came, the best and the only place to go was into the city. And when the gates were shut, the enemies or the marauders wouldn't be able to get at you. You were safe. You were with the ruler. You were able to enjoy the feasting and the social life that went with being in the city. But to be outside was to be in darkness and in danger. In fact, it's an image that Jesus uses on a number of occasions in his teaching. And it's an image that Paul used in connection with the return of Christ. And these are very sobering words. Again, they'll be on screen. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 8 to 10. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. Now, look, can you begin to understand something of the horror and the terror and the emptiness of being an outsider? Can you grasp that to be outside of Christ is the most awful, it is the most dangerous place that anyone could ever find themselves in? That's why we're passionate to speak to outsiders about Jesus. We care so much for their well-being, we love them. We want the very best for them. And if, could I just say, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, just to tell you we're here not to sit in judgment on you, but to tell you we, we love you. And, and we want you to know the best, and we want you to know life, and we want you, above all, to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, because you're on the outside. But that's not the only motivation and as we turn our attention this morning to Paul's visit to Athens, we see the motivation. It's just not about the well-being of others. It is that, but it's also about the glory of God. Have a look at Acts 17, 16. Again, the verse will be on screen, but if you have your Bible with you, maybe you'd like to have Acts 17 open because we are going to keep going back to that passage. And Acts 17, 16 says this, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the whole city was full of idols. Literally, the city was smothered, or it was swamped by idols. It's actually a unique word in the Greek. It's the only place it occurs. And what we see in Paul is his passionate concern for God's glory. It consumed him. It literally pained him when God was being robbed in this way. He was jealous for the honor of God. And my friends, if we truly treasure Christ, we'll be passionate about his glory and honor. 
our heart's desire will supremely be for the glory of our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ, the Creator, the Redeemer, the one who holds the highest place, the one who merits the highest praise, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the crucified substitute, the risen Savior, the darling of heaven, the eternal Father's eternal Son. We are jealous for His glory and honor and praise. Yes, of course, we should be moved by the emptiness of those who follow other gods. We should be moved by their eternal fate, but above all, we should be moved that Jesus Christ does not now receive the honor that is due to him, the praise that is his by right, the love, the wonder that he deserves. But the story doesn't end with Paul's emotions. That's just the beginning. Because of what's rightly stirred within himself, Paul proclaims the only message that can deliver and rescue idolaters. He, he proclaims Jesus. Not morality, not religion, but Jesus. Acts 17 verses 16 to 17, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue. Do you notice that connection? He was pained in his heart that the Lord Jesus was not receiving the praise and honor. So he did something about it. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. My friends, I want you to understand that evangelism is not a program. It's not a guilt trip. It's not one of those unspeaking rules and regulations that seem to litter fake church life. No, it's the natural, overflowing response of loving and being loved by such a wonderful Savior. And I want you to see how Paul naturally goes about communicating Jesus. First of all, I notice that he contextualizes insightfully. He contextualizes insightfully. In other words, his method of presenting the good news was governed by those he was addressing. We see that in the passage before us. Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. And we know from previous incidents that Luke's described, even at the start of this chapter 17, that this involved the use of Scripture, proving that Jesus was the fulfillment of all the Messiah prophecies. So in that context, in that Jewish synagogue context, he took those Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, and he went through, reasoning on the basis of what they knew and understood, and proving that Jesus was the Messiah. But then you go on in the second half of verse 17 to another category. As well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Now, this is a different category of people. These are ordinary pagans and thinkers. 
And so Paul engages in dialogue with them. Now, now, this sort of dialogue was a rigorous style of debate and questions and answers. Actually, it was something these people were used to in Athens, there in the Agora, the marketplace, because it was a, a method that had been championed by the famous Socrates, one of the greatest philosophers of all times. Uh, and Socrates was great at saying, ask questions, get answers, have your thesis and your synthesis. And then, thirdly, verse 19, they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Now, this is another category. Here are the intelligentsia. The, here are the academics, the professional thinkers, the philosophers. So what we find Paul doing here is giving an academic presentation. This is like a verbal thesis. And in the same way, we must be careful that we don't limit our gospel presentation to just one way. Different people require different approaches. And we must be sensitive to who they are and to where they're coming from. And the technical word for this is contextualizing. I was profoundly helped and affected by reading a book back in the 80s, a long time ago, by Roy Jocelyn called Urban Harvest. It opened my eyes to so many things, not least the different approaches that Paul himself adopted for sharing the gospel. So uh, Roy Jocelyn majored on Pisidian Antioch, that, a Jewish area where, where Paul went in and he addressed the Jews, he addressed the God-fearing Gentiles in the context of a synagogue gathering, and he identifies to them as a Jew. He may well have been wearing his rabbinic clothes at the time, and he bases his arguments upon the commonly acknowledged authority of God's word. All in that context would have understood that and agreed with that. He outlines Jewish history. He points to Jesus the Messiah, who filled the messianic promises. That was in Pisidian Antioch, but then... The following chapter, Acts 14, he comes to Lystra. And Lystra is an entirely different community. This is a farming community made up of largely an uneducated population who seem to be ignorant of Greek culture, who speak their own language. So while he's there, does Paul get out his old sermon notes and say, well, this worked well in Pisidian Antioch. Let me get my notes out and we'll use it here. No, nothing of the sort. The folk at Lystra wouldn't have understood if Paul had presented the good news in the way that he had done in Pisidian Antioch to that Jewish group in that synagogue. In fact, in Lystra, Paul makes no reference at all to Scripture. Although all that he says is biblical. Instead, to Lystra, Paul appears to the, appeals to the universal witness of God's creation. Now here is something that those in Lystra, this farming community, could relate to. It was simple, it was uncomplicated, it was visually illustrated, it was free from the abstract Greek thought that would have characterized some of the cities. So friends, we must start from where people are, rather than assume that they're familiar with biblical concepts and ideas. You see, it's quite possible that their whole worldview sees things completely differently 
to you. See, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. And you instinctively think in certain categories that have been defined by your faith over the years. So you talk about sin and the Bible and the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, which are great truths, but you immediately assume that your friend will understand the words and the terms that you are using. But it's quite possible... Indeed, it's very likely that their whole worldview has been shaped by by a variety of other influences that may have been quite anti-Christian in their origin. So there's little point in talking to them about the fact that they have fallen short of the glory of God when they have no comprehension of what those terms mean. We need to start further back. We need to understand those we're chatting with as well as understanding the message that we're sharing. We need to understand as far as we can where our friend is coming from and what they can relate to. You see, the core gospel message never changes. But it's not a one-size-fits-all presentation. Can I say this just underlines what we said last week, that the good news about Jesus is best presented in the context of relationships, of trust, and friendship, where we understand the person we are sharing with, and we know how to connect with their own life experiences and the categories that they work out of. So you see, Paul contextualizes insightfully. Secondly, he connects wisely. He connects wisely. See, just as Paul would have established common ground in the synagogue by speaking to the Jews as a Jew himself, when he came to that meeting in the Areopagus, he also immediately made a connection with them. Have a look at verses 22 to 23. Men of Athens, says Paul, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. See, Paul didn't go blasting in. He didn't stand in front of the Areopagus and said, you guys are vile pagan idolaters. Rather, he courteously acknowledged that they were religious. In fact, the Greek that's used here literally means he described them as God-fearers. You see, Paul was the master at connecting with his hearers, whatever the situation. You see, as we've said, in Pisidian Antioch, he connected as a Jew. He did the same at the synagogue in Ephesus. He connected as a Jew. In Athens here, he connects through what he had seen while walking around the city. You know, this, I saw this object to an unknown god. And a little bit later, in future chapters, we'll see before the rioting Orthodox crowd in Jerusalem, he connects by saying, actually, I once was really Orthodox. I thought that as well. See, my friends, the reality is that you and I will share many experiences with others who live in this broken and fallen world. Disappointments and regrets. Broken hearts. And failing health miscarriages and bereavements, the list goes on. 
And it's in the course of a friendship that we'll be able to discover where we connect and what it might be that will enable our friends to understand what we're trying to say. And of course, we need to speak their language. What I mean by that is there's no point using words that have no meaning to our listeners. You see, when I'm with biblically literate believers, I'm really happy to talk about and to sing about being washed in the blood of the Lamb. It's a precious truth. It's a, that's richly biblical language. But my friend next door wouldn't have a clue what I was talking about. Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? In fact, I would be rising up his weirdo meter very quickly. I would be in danger of losing his friendship. Instead, I want to use phrases and descriptions that are accessible to him. So my friends, don't start from a distance and throw stones. Listen hard and build bridges. He contextualizes insightfully. He connects wisely. Thirdly, he communicates effectively. He communicates effectively. See, those philosophers in the Areopagus, like those in Lystra, wouldn't have known the Hebrew scriptures. But they knew their own poets. And so Paul illustrates what he is saying by using quotes from these poets. Verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And actually what Paul is doing here is quoting from two poets. The first, for in him we live and move and have our being, comes from a guy called Epimenides, who was a 6th century BC poet from Crete. You actually find reference made to him in the letter to Titus. And the second quote, we are his offspring, comes from a guy called Aratus, who was a 3rd century BC poet from Cilicia. So you see, what Paul was doing, he was using their own poets against them. He was using some of their arguments about the human condition to prove his own point. And could I suggest we should seek to do the same as we share the good news with people who are ignorant of the Bible. What's the use of biblical analogies if our hearers have no idea of where they come from? Well, I think we should put out Gideon's fleece. Far better to use quotes from well-known songs or ideas from widely watched programs or themes from well-read books to illustrate gospel truths. It's not the gospel, but it helps illustrate gospel truths. And actually for us, the poets of our age are those whose music is followed. Any cursory viewing of the Glastonbury Music Festival when it comes on between the COVID lockdowns will show tens of thousands singing out words that they've memorized from their favorite artist. They know them. They've taken them in. Now, whilst many of these lyrics are bland or worse, there are some that reflect the angst and the confusion and the despair of the modern age. Let me just give you one example uh, would be Taylor Swift's song, 22. You've probably come across this reference before. It's not often you'll see Taylor Swift, by the way, at Charlotte Chapel, but enjoy the, the moment. Uh, in the song, she writes, We're happy, free, confused, and lonely at the same time. It's miserable and magical, oh yeah. 
Tonight's the night when we forget about the deadlines. It's time. Uh -huh. I don't know what about you, but I'm feeling 22. Everything will be all right if you keep me next to you. Now, we're feeling happy, free, confused, and lonely at the same time. That's incredibly revealing and resonates with so many of that generation. It's miserable and magical. Oh, yeah. And if we keep our eyes and ears open, there are numerous contemporary illustrations that will help us make our communication clearer and more effective. The Christian blogosphere will pick up many such gems, and it's a good idea to keep up to date, maybe with one or two trusted bloggers who might point us in the right direction. For example, there's a blog called Speak Life, with Glenn Scrivener, which is really valuable in this regard. And if you're looking for ways that you could connect with your, Christi uh, with your unbelieving friends, your outsider friends, go to Speak Life with Glenn Scrivener. But actually, often we don't need to go that far. News stories of celebrities and sporting heroes, of events both tragic and glorious, give us a deep pool to swim in for our illustrations. There even may be some wisdom in knowing in outline, if not watching every episode, dramas that are shaping conversations at work or outside the school or college. You see, what point are they making? What questions are they raising? And does your, how does your distinctive viewpoint as a believer contribute to the discussions that they provoke? Look, we shouldn't be surprised that with all the wonders of common grace and all the pain and turmoil of living in our fallen world, that there are numerous ways the gospel can intersect with and illustrate the issues facing our friends. We just need to be ready. Now, I'm afraid we must bid farewell to Taylor and go on to our fourth point. He counters boldly. He counters boldly. You see, the gospel will upset. It won't sit easily with idolaters. There's no way that Christian communicators are going to win popularity prizes. Just look at the way that Paul confronted the assumptions of the leading minds in Athens. And it's stunning, actually, to see how relevant these sound in today's society. Let me just take a quick uh, run through here. He says to them, you don't know at all. Acts 17.23, now what you worship is something unknown I'm going to proclaim to you. He tells them God is bigger than you imagine. Verses 24 and 29, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. God is bigger, friends, than you imagine. Thirdly, he doesn't need us, but we need him. Verse 25, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Fourthly, he says, God's the God of all nations, not just you. Verse 26, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. God's the God of all nations, not just you. Do you know that's one of the most potent arguments that we can use today because we are being bullied by the elites uh, in our Western society who are living in complete ignorance and with arrogance against the vast majority world. His fifth point, God's not far away. He's near you now. 
verse 27, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Sixthly, God's the judge, not you, says Paul. Verses 30 into 31, in the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. Paul is speaking before the Areopagus, who have this sort of judging, overseeing capacity, and he says, you think you're in charge making judgments, let me tell you, you are answerable to the living God. And his final point, Jesus clearly rose from the dead. He's the victor. Second part of 31, he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. And it's interesting, here's the greatest apologetic, I think. It is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. My friends, take your friends to the resurrection. Say to them, well, explain the resurrection to me. We know Jesus lived. He, historically, that's, uh, that's a given. You can find that anywhere with any serious historian. Explain to me the resurrection. How was the tomb empty? So he contextualizes insightfully, he connects wisely, he communicates effectively, he counters boldly. Fifthly, finally, he confirms personally. He confirms personally. Now, this point doesn't arise from the passage we're looking at in Acts 17, although Paul may well have illustrated what he was saying by reference to his own experience. But actually, this is something that Paul is recorded as doing on three other occasions, telling his story. In Acts 9, in Acts 22, and in Acts 26, he shared his story. He told his listeners how he became a follower of Jesus Christ. And in the same way, we should be delighted. We should be able to speak of what happened to us when we became Christians. And speak of the effect that it's had upon us. We should show that this is earthed in everyday reality. You see, at times I think this is where our language can let us down. Look, friends, we need to go beyond the cliché. To say that I was born again is both glorious and confusing. It needs careful unpacking. Or to say that I asked Jesus into my heart suffers the same problems. It's probably best to find other ways to explain what God has done in your life. You see, we need to remember that we live in an age when telling your own story is far more acceptable than it may have been a generation or two ago. Because we live in a multi-ethnic, multicultural society, we are more ready to listen to one another's experiences. It was an Irene Bevin, the Welsh Labour politician, who once said, this is my truth, now tell me yours. Which in turn actually became the title for the Manic Street Preacher's 1998 album. I throw that in for nothing. But it did sum up where society was changing and heading. You see, in an age as we live in where society considers each truth as valid as another, however contradictory, we should use this opening. And let our truths be known, confident that a sovereign God can and will vindicate the message of grace. Actually, it's probably worth having a think through your unique salvation story and working out how you could communicate it with someone who asks. Look, see if you can get it down to under five minutes 
in a cliche-free zone. And actually, maybe ask a Christian friend to critique what you've prepared. Because it's amazing the blind spots that we all can develop as we tell our stories. So what's the outcome of all of this work in Athens? You see, here's an apostle, an apostle preaching. Here is the preeminent missionary. Here's the inspired writer of Holy Scripture. And he has just given this gospel presentation before the Areopagus. Surely it's revival time. Surely at the end of that presentation, all he has to do is he worries that if you'd like to come to the front, you know, just form an orderly queue while the choir sings. Come to the front. Nothing of the sort. You see, there are no guarantees that any particular man or method will produce results. It's all down to the wisdom and grace of our sovereign God. And rather than the blessings that he's seen in places like Philippi or Berea, Paul is faced with three responses there in Athens. There's contempt. Contempt. He's already suffered it from the amateur philosophers there in the Agora. Acts 17 Verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And actually the Greek word for babbler, it literally means a seed picker, a bird that scavenges for scraps. It was actually a slang way of saying that Paul was a plagiarist. Someone who picked up the second-hand ideas of others and put them together in some sort of ragbag collection. In other words, it was an incredibly arrogant put-down. What a fool he is! What an idiot! They were saying. Which is exactly what Paul was faced with amongst the professionals in the Areopagus as well. Verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. There's contempt. Secondly, there's curiosity. Verse 32, but when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want, you to, hear, we want to hear you again on this subject. This is interesting. Mm, let's, 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 let's have some further chat. Curiosity. And thirdly, there's conversions. Verse 34, a few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. You see, humanly speaking, that mission to Athens was a failure. There were few converts. There are no later references to a strong or thriving church there. But the point is this. Some were saved. Paul knew that the work wasn't ultimately down to him. It was God's work to seek and to save the lost. And as we live in our communities, we do so with all grace and passion and energy because we are pained to see that people are on the outside, that they're not giving glory to Jesus. But we do so in his strength, with his wisdom, and in his way. Um, friends, the question for you here right now, this morning, is look, will you be faithful? Will you persevere, whatever they might say, or however they might sneer? Will you grasp the opportunities of tomorrow in the knowledge that God will save those he is calling to himself? 
and will you so fall in love with Jesus all over again that it's the most natural thing for you to do? Brothers and sisters, let's live out for the glory of Jesus. Let's live those lives that commend him in every way. Let's take up every opportunity that comes to us with wisdom and grace. Let us see how we may do good. Let us see how we may do gospel. Are you ready? Let's pray. Father, forgive us that some of us have got lost in the Christian ghetto. And we don't know how to communicate that good news with others. Father, some of us have so few Christian unbelieving friends. We seem to spend all our lives in our meetings and with our Christian associates and colleagues. Sovereign God, give us a love for those who are on the outside. Give us a love for those who are robbing Jesus of his glory, who don't know him to the full. And Father, help us to speak in ways that are wise and bold and compassionate and understanding. Give us wisdom, we pray. Give us passion, we pray. And we ask it all in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. We're going to sing as we close together. Salvation belongs to our God. Let's stand.
want the honor, the glory to go to you and to King Jesus. Holy Spirit, please would you do your work and draw many to know him as their Lord and as their Savior. And Father, again we pray, use us to bring glory to you. Help us with neighbors and friends and colleagues and family members, indeed with everyone you bring across our paths sovereignly, that we would be ready to give a good answer for the hope that lies within us. And we ask it for your praise and honor. Amen.